From the bowels of uncertainty and fear, from the mountains of euphoria and success, from the faraway lands of China and Far East, to the warm glowing sun of California coast and the top of the Freedom Tower, we bring you the Global Edge Talk. If you are an aspiring entrepreneur or hardened enterprise global executive with an edgy story of winning or defeat, entering new markets, or getting out of the old ones, we want to talk to you. We want to share your story. We want everyone to be on the edge. And because of you, we want everyone to have the edge, the global Edge. And now, the Global Edge talk host, Alex Romanovich. Hi, everybody. This is Alex Romanovich of Global Edge Talk. Today, we have a very important guest, a very relevant topic. We're in the middle of a, of a major global crisis, uh, the coronavirus crisis, which is global. Dr. Wendy Tong is our guest. She is the internal medicine physician who decided to transform the aging and the elderly experience through a new model of home care, which is coupled with innovative technologies. And we're hoping and we're looking forward to it impacting the daily lives of our seniors and elderly. We all have family members and friends who are in that age category. Wendy is the CEO and founder of Wendy's Team. She founded the agency in 2016 an established presence in Denver and Boulder, Colorado. She shares the trials and tribulations of putting aside a high-paying executive position. She was a um, highly paid executive in managed care in uh, various companies, and she decided to pursue a dream and start her own company. And the impetus for that was not just her dream, but was also something that developed in her life, something that happened with her father, and uh, she will talk more about this as well. Wendy, uh, we're so happy to have you here. Welcome to our studio. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me. We're very excited to talk to you about this and so many things in your life, but also in developments that are touching the lives of our citizens and global citizens. Our audience is always interested in learning more from global entrepreneurs. You have a very interesting background. You are a single mom of three children as well. You uh, have made some amazing accomplishments. So you have some amazing accomplishments. You've made some incredible changes in your life. Had a very interesting career, a multicultural background, a very dramatic experiences with your family. What drives you? What you know when you accomplish something like this? What is driving you to continue to deliver this level of energy, this level of excitement, and this level of drive? Yeah. Thanks, Alex. So. What drives me is really all about my family and leaving a big footprint and leaving a legacy. You know, we all have to leave one day and I want to leave so that the world is a better place for my children to grow into. I have three children. They're very young, seven, six, and six. And of course, you know, my area of training and interest has been in the elderly. And a large part of it is also paying it forward. Um, I've grown up in, within a family of great privilege and blessings. I grew up in Hong Kong. And one of the motivations for me in really changing the face of home care for seniors is actually my own father. He's now 80 years old. And he had always wanted me to pursue medicine and supported me in my 
education. And actually in 2017, shortly after I started my company, he suffered a severe fall in the bathroom, hit his head and had a significant bleed inside his head. And that bleed has left him completely confined to the bed. He's actually dependent on a ventilator. And he had always expressed a wish for remaining in his home and being surrounded by family and friends. And so I've actually created hospital level care, actually intensive care unit level of care for him in the home setting. And so there's a part of me that's driven by leaving a footprint and a better place for my children to grow up into. And part of it is actually me paying it forward and paying my debt back to my father and my family for having been able to support me in this really privileged life and education and education that actually has subsequently allowed me opportunities to make an impact. So as you mentioned, you know, my family is in Hong Kong, my family is in the United States, we also have family businesses in Canada, and it's truly an appreciation a connectedness with the world uh, that I contribute my services to. Wow. That's incredible, Wendy. You're a business owner. You're part of another business, family business. You're here sometimes remotely, sometimes in person. Your dad, who's in Hong Kong, you are also taken care of through a network and the association with over 90 caretakers and guardians, as you call them, in your uh, in your business. You've taken care of hundreds of elderly uh, citizens here in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about your earlier career sure. uh, with managed care and U.S.-based hospital system. As we're beginning to see that our system, healthcare system, is going to show cracks, is showing cracks with coronavirus, with what's happening out there. We're seeing globally that something like this is unforgiving. You know, we look at Italy, we look at China, we look at other countries, and it's, it's mind-boggling. What what do you think is going to happen here? What do you think we need to do in terms of U.S. managed care and hospital system? And will any of the systems, be it Medicare for all or self-paid or combination of two, what is going to work here? Yeah, you know, even before coronavirus, the U.S.'s performance in, you know, healthcare outcomes um, was already abysmal. And I think coronavirus has actually uncovered or revealed, you know, even more deficiencies. And I'm anticipating that we will have, you know, these deficiencies in our healthcare system will be even more apparent in the ensuing months. So, you know, speaking of even before the coronavirus, um, just to give you an idea of how poorly U.S. healthcare compares to other countries of similar size and wealth. There's a an index called the Healthcare Access and Quality Index, or HAC Index, and this score is based upon the idea of amenable mortality, which means a death that could actually have been prevented if timely and effective healthcare was delivered. The lower the score, the poorer the quality and access to healthcare. And the U.S. scores dead last, no pun intended, dead last among all G13 countries. And yet we also have access to the most amazing medical knowledge. We have the most number of Nobel Prize laureates in medicine. And so there's a discrepancy, you know, how do we actually have this the worst healthcare outcomes? And I think it's really, 
you know, access to, to healthcare. And that's across, you know, all areas, whether it's geographic, social, economic, cultural, educational, you name it. And I think that the coronavirus is going to really demonstrate how there are just so many barriers to accessing care. Now, you mentioned, you know, managed care and um, Medicare for all. Uh, would that work? Would a hybrid work? You know, at the end of the day, you know, if, if you have uh, something like Medicare for all, uh, and I'm drawing from my own experience because I was actually a physician executive at one of the uh, largest insurance companies in the U.S., and I was part of the leadership team that rolled out the Medicaid expansion back in 2014. And yes, we increased coverage significantly for my area uh, that I covered from 230,000 members to 430,000 members and from five to 18 counties. And, you know, it did improve access. And at the same time, we also were aware that giving somebody an insurance card, you still have to build up the infrastructure to support, you know, the actual delivery of services and overcome other barriers to the care. I think that, yes, our healthcare system is really broken. Um, there's a problem with access. And we also, you know, as a businesswoman, we spend so much more in terms of dollars for healthcare, and yet we don't get, you know, what we are paying for. I think that, you know, Medicare for all, you know, will increase coverage. I think that just like the Medicaid expansion, really, the impact is going to be seen more in the uh, already underserved areas, uh, which is actually the part of the country that Wendy's team is most interested in expanding into. We're currently in Colorado, but we're looking at you know Arizona, Nevada, Texas, the more um, as compared to the coastal areas, um, which actually met, uh, reflects the experience I got from our Medicaid expansion, which is the rural areas really did benefit more than the urban areas where there's already much better access to health care. So I'm looking forward to Medicare for all. I think that there will be, of course, multiple providers of health care, that there will be improved reimbursement rates for, for providers to deliver services in underserved areas. So it'll be very interesting. I think the impact, the, the cost will be initially very expensive, but then the long-term savings will actually, will get better healthcare out, outcomes in the long term, which will equate to long-term savings in terms of healthcare I costs. I see. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your decisions and a little bit about the history of your family. Shortly after starting Wendy's team, your father had an accident. You mentioned that. And yeah. this was one of the contributors to dedicate yourself even more so to Wendy's team what other contribute? What other factors contributed to your decision? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that your contribution with Wendy's team is going to help our elder citizens? Obviously, we have baby boomers that are coming up the age curve, and USA we're beginning to see now is not the most friendly country to elders. You know, based on all the issues that we're seeing and we're beginning to see. So. Tell me more about some other factors. Tell me more about what yeah. specifically you're going to be doing. Yeah, so um, my background, I'm an internal medicine physician. Uh, so um, my training background is, has always been in the elderly, the chronically ill, and 
the chronically disabled. I was a hospital-based internal medicine physician or hospitalist. And actually what I saw in my clinical practice days is that, yeah, my, I, I, I make a lot of difference for my patients when they're in the hospital. But when you look at it, the average length of a hospital stay for a senior is six days. And I started to wonder, what happens in the other 360 days of the year? And um, I also saw that in the senior population, at least one in three seniors ends up being readmitted into the hospital within 30 days of hospital admission. And usually the reasons why they bounce back into the hospital is actually preventable. And if a senior were to receive a little bit of home care, and the home care isn't anything fancy, it's just, hey, helping with meal preparations, maybe bathing, showering, um, you know, helping with just daily living type of activities, these seniors could, uh, you know, not end up having a fall or another um, outcome, uh, adverse event that actually lands them back in the hospital. And, um, and not only that, I also realized that most seniors do not want to make that ultimate decision to move from their home and into a nursing home. And that with a little bit of help and support in their home, they can prolong that decision. And as we, you know, started doing Wendy's team and providing services, uh, we found that, you know, not only that, but actually people can age and die and transition in their homes uh, without ever being institutionalized. And it doesn't take very much more than supporting the family and that loved one in their day-to-day -day activities. And because these are activities that I call day-to-day, um, it's what people do for themselves or family members do for them anyway. You don't need, uh, you know, fancy credentials. You don't have to have an RN after your name. And so the support is actually very affordable and can be accessible very easily. And so that was the premise that, that was the foundation for me, starting a home care agency that even though I have a medical degree, it's actually non-medical, meaning that, you know, it's actually really accessible to everyone because we have a large pool of people who can provide these services. Very important points, very important points. And um, another very interesting development here is that our system, as I mentioned before, is beginning to show cracks with coronavirus. But I think the cracks were there even prior to that when we uh, started in the process of getting our democratic candidates ready to vote or to not to vote, excuse me, but you know, on the path to um, developing the path of uh, candidacy with the presidency. And uh, there were a number of interesting debates that we all participated in, in terms of listening and caring and uh, participating in many cases. You know, what are the challenges that you have experienced in transitioning from being an executive in managed care and being executive in part of a system, part of a healthcare system, and now you wanted to start the business in the same industry, in the same segment, if you will. 
how will different policies, whether we're looking at the Republican policies or Democratic policies, and I realize that we don't want to become political, but do you see the support of what you're doing it on one side or another? I'm just very curious about that. Yeah, actually, you know, the policy that I'm most concerned with is actually not necessarily a healthcare policy, but it's actually, you know, uh, with regards to the work status of independent contractors. So Wendy's team is able to provide services that are so affordable. We are the lowest priced home care agency in Denver. And we have a large pool of people who are caregivers, and we can only actually pursue that business model if we use independent contractors. And there's actually a lot of concerns about policies governing independent contractors. A lot of you have probably heard about this in California with Uber and Lyft and the restrictions on independent contractors should they actually be employees. I'll tell you that you know, for the kind of home care services that we deliver, which is, you know, termed unskilled or really kind of entry level, if we were to actually uh, have to provide employee benefits and employee salaries, the model would fall apart that we would actually end up having to pass those employee benefit costs to customers and we wouldn't be able to provide our services at, at the rates we have, you know, and our clientele are on a fixed income. And so this would be uh, very devastating. This would be the most devastating piece of policy if, uh, you know, it was enforced that our caregivers had to be employees. Although we have taken, you know, we anticipate that, you know, our company will evolve and there will be a pool of caregivers who are employees, but we are going to be still dependent on independent contractors and that business model that has independent contractors. As to healthcare policies, in terms of a single payer, you know, really uh, Wendy's team at this point is all private pay. And there are so many people for the value that we give, they're willing to pay privately that we have been able to maintain our operations without partnering with insurance companies or third-party players. Payers, um, in fact, we've avoided being, you know, a, a Medicare or Medicaid provider because of all the compliance measures that, that are required and what that would entail in terms of costs and um, just more, uh, you know, human resources dedicated to credentialing compliance that just uh, we and we don't need to to um, work with insurance at this point because we have sufficient demand and people are willing to pay for these services. Interesting. So we, we're in the middle of a coronavirus global pandemic raging across the globe, impacting so many lives and so many states in the United States as well. Elderly specifically are at much higher risk due to their condition, being immunosuppressed, weak of health, in hospitals, in nursing homes, in assisted living facilities. Just recently, three people passed away in Washington state. Uh, we now have an emergency, a state of emergency in many states in the, in the, in the United States. And you know, we have Wendy's team. How can you help? How can you assist with this situation? Uh, what can be your response and how do you see this developing? Yeah, so whenever there's a place where 
there's a large concentration of seniors. That is an area where they're at risk, really, for contracting any infection, not just coronavirus. And of course, you know, nursing homes really fall into that category. You have the most frail, the most sick seniors, short of being in the hospital. I think at this point, I've actually been telling families who have who are on the fence about whether their senior loved one should go into a nursing home or stay in their homes, especially in light of coronavirus. I am really encouraging families to keep their loved ones in their homes. Um, and, you know, it's really possible to keep a senior in their home for much longer than what most people think is possible and all they may need is a little bit of support and we've had so many experiences that in the past people really had culturally thought that even at end of life that a loved one should be in a nursing home but we've actually taken care of over 25 families through end of life um, and they passed away in the comfort of their homes that it's really possible with a robust home care delivery team. You know, it's it's just so possible. And I've actually experienced that myself in the care of my own father, what we've been able to do. He's been in Hong Kong in the, you know, eye of the storm of coronavirus being in China. Through it all, he has not had any developments in terms of even a cold or pneumonia. And that's because he's in, you know, a, a pretty, ice. he's isolated from other patients and other seniors and his nurses are the ones who only have him as their patient. So they're dedicated to him. If anything, it's really protecting his nurses as they're out in public when they come to his home. But it's so that's what I see can be really contribution of home care. So from what I understand, and you told me about this a little bit earlier, is that you created this home environment for your dad with visiting nurses and uh, caretakers Talk a little bit about that particular setup, you know, for the lack of a better word, I'm going to call it a setup, but, you know, it was a special needs setup. Talk more about that and what you've been able to accomplish. My father, uh, this was in 2017, he was in the intensive care unit at the hospital in Hong Kong and his uh, apartment, I basically reconfigured his apartment. He is actually in the living room of his apartment and there's a hospital bed. There are two ventilator machines. One is a backup. He's on the ventilator. He's dependent on the breathing machine 24 hours. He has actually a feeding tube and a catheter for his bladder. His nursing staff are there in 12-hour shifts, two 12-hour shifts. We also have a uh, live-in helper who is not a nurse, but assists the nurses in the physical lifting and the, you know, more physical things and to keep the house clean. And he doesn't need to go to the hospital because his physician actually does home visits once a month to change his breathing tube, to do any checks. He doesn't need to go to the hospital for any blood work. We have a lab that sends somebody to draw blood from him. Yeah, he gets, uh, because he's laying on his back, he is not had a bed sore in the past year and a half. And that's because every two hours, the nurse and his helper rotate him, shift his body, and they do whole body cleaning, a sponge bath twice a day. You know, we've been able to keep him comfortable. And he has 
a lot of moments where he's awake and alert and is aware of what's happening in his environment. And we can do certain things in his home that you can't do in a hospital that really creates that home feeling for him. Like, for example, Chinese New Year, the, his room is decorated in all Chinese New Year decorations. Christmas, we had Christmas decorations. And then family come to visit more easily than at the hospital where there are strict visiting hours. And when I'm there, I pretty much mostly at his bedside, I'm working, I'm doing my work with him and, you know, talking with him and we can have the TV as loud as he wants to, or however the channels that he likes. But really the important thing is that he is not exposed to the really unhealthy environment in a hospital where there's the sickest of the sick and where all you know the worst infections are concentrated, so he really um, has a minimal risk of contracting any infection, including coronavirus. Very and interesting. It does take a team. It does take a team to do this. Yeah. Do you think this is possible to recreate or to create something like this here in the United States with what we have in terms of reimbursements, or is it only affordable to some that have some level of resources and so forth? As I mentioned, I come from a family that has financial resources. And so in Hong Kong, also labor is a lot less expensive than in the United States. We have domestic helpers who are from Indonesia and the Philippines who help us. Um, that is certainly not available here in the United States. I do believe that the hospital setting can be reproduced, maybe in a much smaller setting than the hospital per se you know, maybe in a group home. It really hasn't been done yet, but I do think that it is possible to do. There are a lot of devices nowadays, like the ventilator I mentioned, that are portable. You know, IV infusions can be done in the home. And uh, it might be, you know, really looking at, gosh, how currently hospitals are, are huge facilities with lots of patients where, hey, there are smaller settings where, even pretty intensive healthcare can be delivered. I was just going to say that with the experience that we're living through with nursing homes and assisted living facilities, the controversies with nursing homes, the challenges that, I mean, they serve a very important purpose. At the same time, there's a certain amount of risk that's involved. With the hospitals, which may be completely overrun by, by patients during the coronavirus crisis, at the peak of their capacity and, and above capacity, I think there will be a lot of interest to look into home-based facilities, independent living type of uh, environment, you know, and so forth. This information is, ex is extremely important. We will be posting some pictures and some information and links to what uh, Wendy and her family were able to accomplish, and certainly we'll be posting a lot of information tied to Wendy's um, team uh, links and supporting information as well. A couple of other questions, Wendy. I'm amazed by you. You know, you have you're an entrepreneur, you're a former executive in the managed care segment, you're a physician, you have other business interests, specifically in the United States and Canada. In Canada, you have hotel, a travel agency, and tour bus operation. Clearly, to those who are in a small, medium-sized business segment, this virus is going to be uh, is going to be very impactful. It has hit a number of industries and will hit a number of industries very, very hard. How have you been able to repurpose some of your businesses? What are you doing to mitigate the risk of what 
has happened, what is about to happen. How do you survive? How do businesses survive in this environment? Can you share that? Yeah, certainly. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll pull from our tourism and hospitality services, my family's businesses, because I actually think that the home care business is actually going to increase um, due to the coronavirus. But certainly tourism and hospitality services were among the earliest and most significantly impacted in these first few months. Our travel agency suffered an 80% immediate drop in sales because primarily we were providing package tours to tourists from China, Korea, and Japan. And actually, uh, this morning, I looked at our year-on-year weekly sales for our bus company, and we dropped 30%. We've only been able to sustain these two operations. Um, The hotel and the bus operations have travelers from other countries, as well as actually local travelers. And the bus company is now kind of pivoting on that and really looking towards drumming up local clientele with things like, oh, spring break student shuttles pass. And But even then, we've really had to tighten our belts across the board. We've had to make HR decisions in terms of cutting hours for our drivers, our managers. We're, you know, looking at cutting some of our routes um, we're watching our competitors to at the least match, you know, what their prices are. Uh, we're anticipating they'll be dropping their prices. And, you know, we don't know how much of an impact price war would even have. We don't think, you know, we don't want to enter into an aggressive price war business. At the end of the day, there's actually a low clientele for everybody. And we might end up killing each other with a price war. Um, we're also aggressively pursuing a lot of RFs, RFPs, requests for proposals, bids, basically, you know, in the past that we might have found unattractive, but we're really like casting our net out wide. The other thing is that we're looking at commissions and contracts where we're paying uh, third parties for maybe an endorsement or some sort of exclusivity and renegotiating those because it is also in their best interest that we survive. And we're also looking at other revenue streams, other ancillary products that we might sell, accompany our existing services, be it, gosh, you know, a, a flexible ticket feature where, hey, buy your ticket now, but you can cancel at any time. Uh, with a full refund, things like that. So we're being really, really creative. Uh, fortunately, in all of our businesses, you know, we have that agility because we are the majority or sole owner. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th- I think it's going to be hard for large companies where they may not have that agility to flex as quickly and as responsibly. But uh, at the same time, I think it's it's not just the healthcare businesses that are going to be impacted. It's going to be all businesses and everyone at all walks of life who are going to be impacted. And it's really this might actually herald a renaissance because, you know, as we're confronted with the challenges of responding to coronavirus, everybody's going to be more agile, be more innovative, more creative. Uh, in order to survive. So this might actually herald a lot of creativity and innovation um, in terms of businesses. Uh, great tips. Uh, we'll also summarize those and post them on the landing page. Wendy, let's talk a little bit about your personal life. You're a single mom of three kids. 
until recently, very busy executive at uh, managed care, one of the giants of managed care. And uh, now you're an entrepreneur of a very busy and fast-growing business. How do you manage? How do you reconcile that, all of that, your personal busy life with the crazy business endeavors, saving businesses, rethinking strategies, growing businesses, and so forth? And what do you say to all the single moms who are dreaming of doing the same thing or thinking of surviving? Yeah, Alex, I do have a lot of accountabilities. Actually, I'm at a stage in my life where I have more accountabilities than I ever have had. Um, and at the same time, I actually feel like, okay, I, I am able to manage all of them. And in fact, even grow my plate, not take any, I don't feel like I need to take anything off my plate, at least for now. The secret you know, behind that is having delegates, having lieutenants in area, every area of my life that I can trust and who are, first of all, aligned with my vision. So, for example, um, one accountability is taking care of my father. So um, in place in Hong Kong, I have my aunt who is, you know, aligned with me in how we want to approach our care for my father. And there's also um, a trusted caregiver who's been with my father eight years and who really is like family to us. And she's my eyes and ears, you know, not just in my dad's care, but in some of like the decision making around his um, apartment, his rental property, so forth. It's having those lieutenants in my home and with my, my children. I have a live-in au pair who's been with me a year and a half, and she knows exactly how I want to raise my kids, and she is my delegate, and she can she has you know a certain level of authority and decision making as well. And then in Wendy's team, the same thing. My operations manager, you know, knows exactly how I would do things, and she always always makes decisions that at the end of the day, when she runs them through me, I, I always say, oh, you know, that's exactly how I would have handled it. Thank you. And the same thing with, with our uh, family businesses in Canada is that we have a similar level of alignment. My father's business partners have been working with him for almost 30 years, and they know how he would have made decisions. And so I represent him, and we're really all aligned. Um, so in all areas of my life, I've found lieutenants who are very aligned with what I want and what is the outcome, and so that they can put into action whatever needs to be in place for that aligned outcome. That's one part of it. Now, how to reconcile my personal and professional life. I actually do a lot of personal and professional development and training work through a global organization that I also coach. Through this work, I've actually seen that all of my accountabilities, what I'm up to in life are actually all aligned with motherhood. You know, if I were to name one thing in my life, that is, I want to be the best mother that I can be. Everything in my life, whether it's being the best businesswoman, the best, you know, coach, best daughter, they're all aligned with me being the best mother I can be. And so I actually never see any discrepancy between anything that I'm doing that makes an impact and makes me a better human, they're all aligned with me being the best mother I can be. And my children get to see that and to experience that. My expression as a businesswoman, my expression as a coach, my, best expre my expression as a daughter all make me the best human I can be. And the best human I can be is what I offer to, you know, to my children to be the best mother that they can experience. So there's never any conflict there. 
Wow, that's, it certainly is a very delicate balance, and um, I'm glad that your, your priority is still being a great mom, and uh, that is so important. Yeah, um, and then you asked me about, you know, what I might offer, you know, single moms, um, and I'd offer that whatever you may have against in the space um, that could be negative uh, towards your former uh, spouse or the other parent to put that aside really because it's quite a burden to carry blame or anger resentment sadness and instead just put it all aside and create newly you know that for me was what i undertook and once i put that aside then it left me with space to create a brand new co-parenting relationship with my former husband the father of my children and also, like, gave me space to create new businesses, to create new friendships, new relationships, maybe even in- reinforce some old friendships that had kind of fallen into the wayside. And so that's my biggest foundation for um, divorced husbands or divorced wives, uh, single moms, you know, however it is. And I actually wish my former husband, every happiness and success because he, he is happy and successful. That's the household that he creates for my children to be in. Um, and to really look at it that way and embrace it that way. I really don't have any animosity or resentment against my former husband. First of all, it's amazing. It's refreshing to hear this. You know, a lot of women struggle with something like this, with uh, those types of issues, not just women, men as well, spouses or former spouses. So to hear from you, somebody who's extremely busy, somebody who has a very full life, a lot of responsibilities and accountabilities, to give that piece of advice is extremely valuable. Let's talk about another very sensitive, very edgy topic, which is multiculturalism and the fact that we're now getting even more isolated in the world based on coronavirus. But, you know, the isolation has always existed there. Racism always existed there in this country and all over the world. Now, you're Asian American woman. You came from Hong Kong. You were, were you born here in the United States or were you born in Hong Kong? I was born in the United States and went back to Hong Kong when I was five and grew up in Hong Kong while it was a British colony. Okay. And um, while Hong Kong was preparing for the transition back to China, which occurred in 1997. Right. So my generation actually experienced a lot of, gosh, you know, uh, what will happen with uh, communist China taking over Hong Kong? A lot of uh, my parents' generation, it was still in living memory, the you know impact of the Cultural Revolution, and there was a right. lot of fear there. So my but- generation looked towards emigrating to countries that were not under a communist government. Right. But with the rise of racism and isolation and very fast changing attitudes, what do you think is going to happen in America? What do you think is going to happen to our Lady Liberty values? And what will happen to America that we either imagined or knew or experienced with so many multicultural and immigrant families that came here a long time ago? and instill those values in their children, what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, I think sadly, you know, the Lady Liberty values that you referred to, gosh, you know, that America is the land of opportunity for all if you had 
the willingness to work and so forth. I, I think it's been eroding actually for many years that actually, you know, from outside of the United States looking to the United States, the United States has not really been a desirable destination for many immigrants. I'm, I'm primarily speaking from, you know, my Hong Kong experience where in the 1980s, a lot of families who could afford to emigrate were considering countries like the United States, Canada, and Australia, and often would actually choose to go to Canada or Australia because the barriers to immigration were a lot less. And, uh, you know, immediately, I think that there's been a lot more rhetoric about racism, protectionist rhetoric um, since President Trump took office. And there are a lot of uh, people all over the world who may have considered emigrating to the U.S. who no longer see uh, immigration to the U.S. as desirable and have opted to go to other countries. Um, And what that means is that we really have an attrition of skills and professionals and talent, you know, look at, go go to, uh, you know, any large company in Silicon Valley and you can see how diverse and multicultural the workforce is. And I think we've actually already started suffering from that, that we don't, you know, we will lose our cutting edge in terms of innovation, in terms of the unique energy and robustness that a lot of immigrants bring with them because they are ready for a new start and they embrace that new start. You know, not saying that that's unique to um, immigrants, but really there is a certain level of energy, interest, innovation, new ideas, and so forth that immigrants bring with them. And we're going to suffer from that. Very sad. If anybody is going to make prediction of what's going to happen two or three years from now, if anybody is going to be qualified, it's probably going to be you, Wendy. What do you think is going to happen? First of all, what do you think is going to happen with you and Wendy's team, uh, which is a wonderful organization, very relevant, very helpful, very valuable? And what do you think is going to happen this entire situation with uh, the pandemic, the, uh, the landscape in the United States for healthcare and elder care? medications, innovations, technologies. The United States is not going to be the only one worrying about this issue. I mean, Japan has some issues that it needs to worry about. Europe as well, South America, all over the world. What do you think is going to happen? Give us your best prediction. Sure. Yeah. You know, as you pointed out, aging is a universal problem. And uh, in the U.S., we've talked about the baby boomers but this phenomenon occurs worldwide. So in terms of Wendy's team, in the first three years of the company, we really dedicated ourselves to learning what the environment is about aging. And what we've noticed is that there are a lot of people who are aging themselves, uh, what we call the young elderly, in the age group of 50s, 60s, maybe even early 70s. Nowadays, we're redefining what elderly actually means. And then then there's the elderly, you know, that are more in the 80s and 90s. Uh, What we're coming across is that there are people living in their, into their 90s, and they have children who are in their 70s. People are aging themselves 
and taking care of aging parents. It's it's really unique to our generation because people really didn't live this long before or live as well for this long before. And so Wendy's team has really gotten to understand this population. And in the next two or three years, with that understanding of this population, we're actually going to explore how home care can be revolutionized. And what I mean is that, you know, home care, you know, as we also realize that, you know, the productive, the younger workforce in proportion to the aging, the size of the aging population is going to be less. uh, How do we create home care that is even more effective, but maybe with technology that we can complement an in-person home care with, say, hey, you know, uh, technological advances such as, hey, a voice-activated voice assistant, personal assistant, a voice-activated personal assistant, uh, virtual-type platforms, wearable devices that can keep track of, you know, certain parameters like activity level, blood pressure, heart rate, that those standard kinds of measurements, but also keep track of, gosh, you know, where is that this uh, senior going to? Are they keeping their appointments with their doctors? Are they taking their meals? And so we can actually, through that data, also figure out when somebody's declining and put in interventions, be it in person, you know, or connecting them to services like, oh, you need another medical appointment or something like that. So, you know, that's the next phase in Wendy's team's development. We have a good concentration of seniors, uh, and we're actually going to start launching some of these technological products uh, that I mentioned, you know, within our population to test out and see what is the best marriage of technology and services to best serve people um, so that they can remain in their homes, age in place, um, and do so, you know, in a way uh, that's safe and they can pursue their lives, you know, what they want in terms of quality of life. Dr. Wendy Tong, I am uh, absolutely um, flabbergasted by the amount of dedication you have for Wendy's team, the caring for the elderly, your dedication to your family, your children, your loved ones in Hong Kong and the United States. You're truly the epitome of uh, what we look for in the global edge. You know, not only living on the edge, which you have done many, many times, but also having the edge and having the trust, the credibility of your community, of your patients, of your clients. It's been a wonderful experience. It's been a privilege to talk to you. We wish you a lot of health, a lot of wellness, a lot of success in your businesses, and hoping to talk to you soon. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye.